Hey there, welcome to the What's Your Thing podcast, where we're all about great conversations with interesting people. That's right, I'm Brennan. And I'm Caitlin. There's something awesome about every person, a thing that makes them truly unique. We wanna know what it is about everyone, so we're asking. What's your thing? Hello. Hello. Good morning. What's your thing number five? Episode number five of the What's Your Thing podcast. We've had many interesting guests. I'm one half your host, Brennan. And I'm Caitlin. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to meet you both. <laughs> we are honored today. We've had some pretty cool podcasts, but we are honored to step into another different direction and we are going to talk about geopolitical global affairs and nuclear disarmament. And I'm honored to have our guest here today, Senator Douglas Roach. Um, you are here in Ottawa for a convention. A number of meetings on the nuclear disarmament agenda, particularly a round table of specialists that we had uh, a day or two ago that considered the future of nuclear disarmament after the Ukraine war. So we uh, tried to penetrate that subject and um, recognizing that uh, nuclear weapons threat it did not come about because of the Ukraine war. The nuclear weapons was far preceded the Ukraine war and the Ukraine war, the threat by Russia to use nuclear weapons uh, just illustrated an existing problem. Yes, and while Senator Roach was here, uh, he's kind enough to speak to us. Um, you've just released your 25th book, 25th book, Essays on a War-Free World, Keep Hope Alive. And um, we're so thankful you took some time out. A lot of what you're talking about at these roundtables is highlighted in your book. Um, but first, we'd love to give just a short introduction of who you are before we get into the conversation. I think it's fair to say you've had a, a pretty experienced life and a pretty interesting life. Uh, just to name a few of your achievements, uh, former senator, member of parliament, diplomat, Canadian ambassador for disarmament, uh, visiting professor, the University of Alberta, vast award winner and nominations for various, various topics in the field of global peace and uh, nuclear disarmament, as well as an honorary citizen of Hiroshima, Japan, uh, chairman of the Uni uh, United Nations Disarmament Committee, 43rd General Assembly in 1988, just to name a few of your achievements. And it's... Uh, and member of the Order of Canada. Yes. And um, a papal award from Pope John Paul II. And the Order of St. Gregory. I've had a checkered past. Yes. How do you find the time to write 25 books, considering that you're so busy? I mean, I, I remember university having to write 10-page papers and just being exhausted at the end of it. Well, of course, I started out my life as a professional journalist. I worked for several newspapers where you learn to write fast and, and try to be accurate. So, um, well, I would not say that writing just comes easily, but a bit, but I have done it all my life, so it's uh, I'm used to the demands of a writing schedule. So it's interesting that you said that because you're, I can see your journalistic background in the book because from somebody who's only, um, I would say, on the surface, uh, has a surface understanding of the issues surrounding global peace and security, nuclear disarmament, I really found the book to be very accessible for me as a reader. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with somebody who's so engulfed 
um, and has so much knowledge, it would be easy for you to write to your um, <clears throat> colleagues. But I feel like this book was really wrote, written for people to understand. I would like to thank you for that comment because that was exactly what I had in mind. I wanted to do for non-specialists um, a book that would be easy to get into, in and out of, and the essays is a for, is a uh, is a format that allows uh, people to kind of dip into the book and uh, not be overwhelmed uh, by it. And so I uh, uh, I hope that it uh, will help some people who have not, you know, been able to spend a lot of time examining these issues that are existential issues about life on the planet. Yes. So where I would uh, love to go as a starting uh, point is we have illustrated how much your life has been informed and dedicated to peace, global security, disarmament. And I would love to start at the, when you're 16 and you've heard about Hiroshima. Um, can you speak to that moment? Because you have an experience that luckily none of us can relate to. So if you could please take us back to that moment when you're 16. Well, of course, it was a simple experience in one sense. I was sitting at the kitchen table and uh, the news came on that uh, a special bomb had just been dropped on Japan and the announcers were saying, well, it looks like the war will now be over soon. And my parents heaved a sigh of relief because I, because I was 16 at the time and they were worried about my being called up uh, to the war and of course the war ended. Uh, but I, uh, it would be uh, false for me to uh, indicate now that I had any great understanding of what was going on. It, it took years before I fully comprehended what the nuclear weapon was. And it was only when I went to Hiroshima as a young parliamentarian about the mid-1970s, nearly 50 years ago, but it was only when I went there and saw for myself the first time the horrors of, uh, of what had happened in the museums, the artifacts. I interviewed the Habakasha, the survivors, and um, that had a profound influence on my life. Uh, it, it jolted me uh, that uh, human beings could treat other people the same way, that way, and uh, it just it was horrible. <laughs> So it, it affected my thinking, and I had been working on development issues and uh, up, up until then, and then I began to think, well, all the money that's going into arms and nuclear weapons would be better for and go into development. And um, so I started to speak out on nuclear disarmament, and uh, maybe, I went, maybe I made one speech too many, and uh, they appointed me ambassador for disarmament in 1984, and then my career settled into that area. So with the disarmament, when you were named ambassador, was there a real, coming up to the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, was there a real push more than now around disarmament? Were there, was there more traction being gained, like we have to take this seriously? Or was it kind of the same as it is where you have the, I guess now nine powers with the 13,000 weapons saying, oh, it's a nice idea, but forget it. No, the answer to your question is yes. It was taken more seriously then and the... Uh deployment of crews and Pershing missiles in Europe electrified the public. And in 1982, there was a million-person march in New York City 
from Dyke Hammershall Plaza outside the UN uh, all the way to Central Park in Manhattan. And uh, the, 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 the fact that there was a million people in this march was indicated the concern of the public. And there were marches in Europe too. So uh, the um, awareness of the public and the concern was at a much higher level than now. It dropped off because when the Cold War ended in the late 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s, people thought that, uh, well, now that problem has gone away and we got on to other things, but it didn't. And uh, the military industrial complex ensured that the um, uh, production machinery would be kept in high gear for uh, extended nuclear weapons. And that is, of course, is what has happened. It's still happening today, the modernization of the nuclear weapons. We have about 13,000 existing, and, and, they're, uh, and they're all being modernized. And so the major states are planning to keep nuclear weapons well through this century. And uh, this is incompatible with the extension of human rights. So as time went on, we began to see a more humanitarian impetus to get us off this nuclear weapons track, and that's why the Prohibition Treaty started. You talk about in the book the country Bangladesh and how it's a perfect example of how if you take money and invest it into education and healthcare, you can kind of see people, their lives be bolstered. Uh, particularly women. Yes. The, the, the single, I've worked on this extensively, the single most important development method is the education of girls and then women. And in Bangladesh is a perfect case in point uh, where the, uh, the co-op methods and the, and, the, uh, and, and the lending of money to start small ed uh, enterprises and uh, keeping girls in school, getting them to grade six, grade seven, and then getting a proportionate more into university. I went back when I first wrote a book on Bangladesh's development in 1976, and uh, 18 years later, uh, the CETA, the Canadian International Development Agency, that now has been folded into the government as a whole, asked me to go back to and retrace my steps 18 years later, and, uh, and uh, I wrote another report that um, illustrated the difference in communities right down at the local level, uh, the difference that uh, the education of women had made to that community. So I'm a big believer in, um, in uh, human development, and not to exclude men and the need for boys also to be fully educated. But the wholeness of our society is uh, something that is uh, uh, sadly still repressed in, in, in aggressive areas, uh, but uh, the parliaments uh, around the world now, uh, it'd be pretty hard to find a parliament that doesn't have at least one woman and, and perhaps a, a lot more. So my experience has been generally that uh, the human security agenda is um, has a better chance of being implemented or advanced along the more women participate in the decision-making processes. 
So I'm curious, um, because in the book you talked about how the UN's sustainable development goals really kind of, you could see how that helped elevate places like Bangladesh as an example, but then you also talked about how those goals are being greatly challenged by COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine. Um, So what do you think would happen if you were to go back today and walk through the same journey that you've gone through, knowing that um, the, the focus from the development goals has shifted and the accessibility to uh, funding is not there. What would happen now? Well, two things. First, back to Bangladesh. Uh, the, uh, when the pandemic struck, uh, Bangladesh is one of its major industries, the fashion industry, and the production of clothes, and designer, and elms, and, and they're sold widely in the Western world. And uh, when people stopped traveling, people would say, don't they buy clothes? Yeah. And so they, they had a ricocheting effect. They shot, a million people just lost their jobs just overnight. With the, because of the shutdown in the in the clothing industry uh, as a result of the pandemic, so that's one illustration. The uh, the sustainable development goals as a whole is a larger subject than than um, than uh, any any one country. It um, it uh, it was a and continues to be a valiant attempt to. Uh, um, Obliterate the, the, the worst forms of poverty. The worst forms. Probably never going to cure poverty 100%, but the worst forms of it, and that which extend into the water systems and health and education and agricultural, I mean, they're all sort of related. So there's 17 goals. Some say there's too many, but anyway, there's 17 goals. And uh, when they were uh, announced, when they were de- when they were decided upon. Announced in 2015, uh, there was a spirit of of optimism, and because they came on top of of the Millennium Development Goals, which started in the year 2000 for a 15-year period, and the the demonstrable result of the Millennium Development Goals was the lifting of millions of people out of poverty, and so they said, well, if we can do this, maybe we could on get it. On a, on a more permanent basis, so they started the Sustainable Development Goals with a, an agenda for 2030, so going from 2015 to 2030. So they started, and, and then of course what happened was the pandemic came in, in the year 2020, and uh, the Ukraine war, and uh, both of these siphoned off money. The Sustainable Development Goals required trillions of dollars, but not just from governments, but from buy-in from private uh, enterprise and partnerships and so on and it's, it's a big it's a big area by itself and um, the uh, they've just held a summit at this at the UN in uh, September of this year uh, which revealed that uh, sustainable development goals are not going to make it at all in their goals for 2030 at the present rate of spending because governments have diverted money that would otherwise go to the sustainable development goals to the Ukraine war and to the extensions of pandemic and uh, the food shortages and everything like that. So we've had a setback and we're living with more than a setback. We've had a, I would say it's a catastrophe for humanity that we're, that we've got a, a coalescence of 
the climate crisis, which is forcing migrants of people, millions of people into forced migrations. Um, it's affecting businesses, it's affecting the whole food production. That's compounded by the Ukraine war and the shutting off of food routes. And uh, now the latest, uh, the Israeli-Gaza uh, conflict. So the, the confluence of, of uh, disa real disasters in the, in the world is, um, has diverted uh, governments from an onward path to continued development. And now they're, you know, they're, 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 they're spending all their time, political attention, and a lot of their, a lot of their money on uh, putting out fires and you know, cross-sectional cross things. So we're, we're living now in a very, very difficult moment. Of, and people say, well, maybe the world is becoming dysfunctional. And um, I don't believe the world is dysfunctional. I think that the world is suffering from poor leadership, but that's another question. That's actually kind of where I wanted to go next. Um, one thing I can say, uh, if I can give you a compliment that I really liked about your book, is you do a very good job of talking about controversial topics but staying apolitical, especially a person who's been a member of parliament. And you seem to be a lifelong learner because I can say in my short life, I'm kind of set in my ways in some areas, but you've definitely, it, I would say, almost like gone with the times, especially with certain social issues. One of the things you talk about um, that kind of struck me is why hasn't there been advancement? Why haven't countries just come together and said, let's stop this? You know, we've got all these weapons that can destroy the planet. Let's just put an end to it. And you do, you do talk about treaties that were signed and then how various governments seem to in the past step forward and say, okay, we're going to be a part of this. But even to some people's surprise, um, uh, conservative and liberal governments alike kind of stepped back from that. Can you speak to some of these treaties and why they haven't worked and why we're not progressing with just a simple, hey, let's all just put these nuclear arms aside and put all our money into something better to help us. I, I wouldn't say that uh, the treaties were abrogated because they didn't work. The uh, United States from the George W. Bush uh, administration came into office in January of 2001. Uh, they immediately set aside the abrogation, the uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty, which was which had been working just fine as a system to deter um, the offensive weapons. Uh, they turned their back on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, uh, which uh, the United States had been the first to sign in 1996. They turned their back and rejected it. And then that rejection flowed through. And then when it came up to the Senate for uh, ratification, it was denied. So. Um, the um, Trump administration uh, pulled out of the Iran agreement, and the Iran agreement had been working uh, to restrain the development of nuclear weapons uh, in Iran. And, um, and now, the, now this has a ricocheting effect that the Russian Duma only the last week or so um, de-ratified, I never even heard the word before, it de-ratified the Russian sig signature on, on the uh, Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, and because they're re reacting against the Western, uh, Western consistent efforts to be dominant, it is the Western, is the Western program, and then the inter, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty was pulled out, 
uh, by the Trump administration. So, I mean, uh, I, I'm I'm a great believer in you know, we all we all ought to be uh, in the international law, and uh, you know you, if you have international law, you think you know you go out there and, and you have a red light, and you go through the car, you the car goes through the red light, the policeman comes and gives you a ticket, you have to go to court. Well, I mean, you know, it's cut and dried. I mean, we have a system of law at the local level. But internationally, we don't have a system of law that is permanent. You can't just turn around and say, well, we're not going to observe the red lights anymore. I mean, you know, we're tired of observing red lights. You know, it's incomprehensible. So in the international sphere, we have not yet matured humanity sufficiently to uh, adopt and enforce international law. Uh, do you think it's a good system that uh, I should be, I meaning a country, should be allowed to hold nuclear weapons and, and uh, threaten the, your very existence? Uh, I mean, this is not, it's not a good way to live. It's preposterous. If you're going to have human rights and proclaim, and this is the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and human rights says that we're all equal, and we all have a right to a life. We all have, a, and it's spelled out in water and systems and so on. We all have a right to life. That's the basic thing. If we all have a right to life, how come then we are permitting the continued existence of weapons of mass destruction to destroy your right to life? It's incoherent to, on the one hand, espouse human rights and in the other to defend the possession of nuclear weapons. And that's why we need to learn more about this interconnection in order to arouse sufficient public opinion to turn us away from the path of continued reliance on nuclear deterrence for our security. So a follow-up question to that, <clears throat> as an individual, as an individual, in a state and as an individual state, as we globalization has shaped our lives and we're all participating in it, and we saw that with the effects of COVID-19, uh, shutdown in West Africa could mean that you lose your job in Montreal. How do we, how do we as individuals work within um, globalization as nationalists and nationalisms on the rise? How does nationalism and globalization work together for global security? Well, uh, I think the Secretary General has, has tried to bring those together in his latest document, A New Agenda for Peace. Uh, this is a document that I think is an outstanding document. He, and he lists 12 points uh, that are uh, uh, to, to, to move, the, move the agenda along. And he says very clearly that, you know, it's, don't look to the United Nations as such that it's going to solve the problems. It's the nations that make up the United Nations. And so we have to get into the, to the, the whole question of how governments are interacting themselves. And that brings us uh, to the central dilemma of today, namely, Whereas we had adopted, it, it tried to adopt a, pr a process of, of cooperation coming out of the end of the Cold War, there was the first ever summit of the Security Council in which they laid out a, 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 an agenda, and, but they began to fall apart. And anyway, in the intervening years and the expansion of NATO, the, 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 
confrontation between East and West sharpening and so on, and, and the wars that happened, particularly Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and not to forget Vietnam, um, it, it shifted the, the, the modus operandi from cooperation to confrontation. And so the distinguishing mark of nations' relationships now is confrontation. And that is inimical to achieving a human security that is based on transnational uh, realities. I mean, you mentioned the pandemic, the pandemic and the climate. I mean, all these things transcend borders. We, we must have international cooperation in a globalized world. And that requires having respect, and it requires that we not seek to dominate one another, and and it is the, the policy of the, uh, the major powers, uh, particularly Russia and, uh, and, the, and the U.S. and now China, and not to allow themselves to be dominated by others. Therefore, they continue to build up their military, and they're building military, and so new arms races are unfolding now because the world has shifted from the cooperation sought by the United Nations to confrontation that is directed by the militaristic elements that, that are prominent, if not dominate, major governments today. Are treaties like NATO and their... NATO is not a treaty. Sorry, yeah. NATO is NATO's an association of uh, a collectivity of Western countries uh, that was formed to uh, head off the Soviet Union at the time. Are they incompatible with uh, the UN's kind of vision of peace? That's a very it? good question. Is, uh, is, is, when, that's a very good question. When um, the Cold War ended and the, the Warsaw Pact, the Warsaw Pact with Eastern countries under, under the leadership of the Soviet Union, who had banded together militarily to react against NATO. NATO started with Western countries. It started with 12 countries, the Western countries, for the, for the purpose of holding off the Soviet Union. And the process has expanded to now the current membership is 31. And so the um, NATO, and, uh, and a lot of people said, and, and I'm certainly one of them, when the Cold War ended, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 and the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union dissolved and the 1990s got started. They said, well, what do we need NATO for? Let's disband NATO also. That idea went nowhere. And the military-industrial complex, these, the defense contract, there's five principles. These are multi-billion dollar organizations uh, in, 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 in principally in the U.S., said, no way, we, we, we have to have uh, continued military strength and so on. So they, it drove the expansion of NATO and it, in the process diminished the impact of the United Nations itself. And well, I mean, this is a complex subject and one, ought, one must be careful not to, uh, not to present it as if it's sort of, you know, cut and dried. I mean, there are many, many entanglements and all that. But, but a, a centerpiece is that the world 
is characterized after the end of the Cold War uh, by the cooperation that uh, was immediately sought uh, was undermined by the expansion, military, mil continued militaristic expansion, and that led to greater scenes of, of, of uh, confrontation. We have not put enough faith in the very body that was established to end war. So where do we go from here with nuclear disarmament? You know, you've talked about how it's taken a shift back from a, almost a new arms race. You spot, speak in your book about, you know, Gandhi's approach to, you know, nonviolent protest and how it can achieve peace. But where do we, where do we go for, for new listeners who are kind of unfamiliar? How do we re, I guess, establish that drive for disarmament that existed when you were talking about the protests in the early 80s and prior to the, I guess, the 9-11 reestablishment of the... Well, uh, I'd like to go back to Gandhi, but uh, Gandhi's not even revered in his own country. They, uh, the present-day Modi Hindu government of India has turned its back on Gandhi. Uh, lamentably so. And um, but where do we go? Look, I mean, I, I spend my hours thinking about this very question. And um, I mean, I, I I don't claim any any special kind of knowledge or some sort of revelation. I don't I don't, I don't present myself that way. Uh, I go back to the Charter of the United Nations. It is the one thing that brought us all together. And the uh, Charter of the United Nations says, we the peoples having been uh, known the scourge of war in World War II, resolve not to do this again by, by doing these following things, namely uh, uh, establishing economic and social uh, systems and uh, and uh, ensuring that uh, no country can invade another country, and that would spend the, uh, that the least amount of money will be diverted from human needs to military activities. I mean, the United Nations Charter is filled with all all these things. So for me, it's a base. I mean, I have to have rock. Like like you know, it's funny. This roach is a rock. So I, I I look about my my family name. As rock, so I got to stand on something. I got to stand on something, or otherwise I'm going to be blown away. Yeah? So I stand on the Charter of the United Nations, and um, we, 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 uh, and I stick up for the United Nations. I've written, I've written several books on on the United Nations. Uh, I wrote a book called The United Nations in the 21st Century, and it goes into a lot of detail on these things. So, look. Um, yeah, as I speak to you, I, I feel like a little red light going off in my head, saying, uh, you know, I should be careful um, not to, uh, in, this, uh, in this little talk we're having, I must be careful not to present myself as some sort of oracle. Mm. As if I've got the all the answers, and if you only did what I do, what I say, hey, you'd all be better off. Mm. I, I don't have that kind of a complex. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to integrate you. But I'm smart enough to understand that humanity has to work together if we're going to survive. 
I mean, what more do we evidence do we need? The climate is all around us. The forest fires, the floods, I mean, the migrations of peoples, millions upon millions of people we've never had it before. It's undermining the whole whole basic structures of life, and um, and and the expansion of of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons particularly. And uh, these uh, th these are existential conditions that demand resolution. But that's why we have governments, why we have pol politicians, why we have political leaders. The political leaders today are letting us down. I have put that to you very gently, because it's a disaster. The uh, the the lack of. Uh, political leaders to have a combination of intellect, a lot of them have intellect, I'd give them that, uh, with uh, vision and courage to uh, step up. And, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela stuck up, Desmond Tutu stuck up, and, you know, we, we, we've had Kofi Annan and Dag Hammarskjöld stuck up. And we just stuck to we, we had been bereft of leaders in the past, as if you know they don't never existed. Well, they have existed, but we need champions today in the political arena. I think that you highlighted that very well, using Canada as an example and the juxtaposition with Trudeau Senior and Trudeau Junior, and showing, <clears throat> for an example, Canada's participation in nuclear disarmament and the challenges. Um, and the changes that have happened in the 40 years between both governments. Um, and I think you've done a really great job today here speaking to us and in, in the book of highlighting what complex and multifaceted um, uh, issues, there are multi-layered issues there are for global peace and security. My question would be, as individuals who are looking at these very intimidated by these complexities. How does an individual participate in global peace and security? Well, uh, join the local UNA, United Nations Association of Canada, has branches all over Canada. Project Plowshares is devoted to disarmament and development issues, uh, has uh, offshoots, it's all it's centered in Waterloo, but it has offshoots across Canada. Uh, there, uh, every person is represented by a member of parliament, and uh, um, who, who, if he or she is interested in remaining so, is open to receiving uh, people, letters, and people. People underestimate their their own uh, power of uh, influence. Um, uh, I've often said if. Uh, the Prime Minister's secretary comes in on Monday morning and there's 5,000 letters there. Well, it's not an inconceivable number. Mm -hmm. 5,000 letters there arrived over the weekend saying, we want the government to do more on nuclear disarmament. You know? or, we want the government to do more on climate. You know, let's, let's take nuclear disarmament. But, but, and, and the secretary says, the Prime Minister, we got this. And the Prime Minister says, oh, that's interesting. And, uh, and the next Monday morning, Come in again, and there's five thousand more there. And, and the secretary says to the prime minister, "We've got five thousand more letters." He said, "We did." And that's oh God, that's interesting. So another week goes by, 
So same thing next Monday morning, five thousand more, ten thousand. Brahma says, I can't believe it. Now, right now, I gotta do something. You see, it's a manifestation of public support. Mm. And is it that hard to write a letter? To I mean, people say, well, I don't know what to say. Well, you know, to say stop building. We don't build them, but stop supporting nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, simple message. People underestimate. I was a member of parliament. Uh, when I was in the Senate, I wasn't elected, but I still paid attention. But when I was a member of parliament, I was four terms. And when I got letters from people, I read them because I knew that each letter represented about 10 more people who didn't actually write. Right. So that they have value. So people underestimate. And so, and um, I, I'm not a perfect guy, you know. In my earlier days, people say, well, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? So one of my books, Justice Not Charity, I had a chapter, 45 things you can do. So, you know, I just do practical things. The book goes out, a year later, on, on another circuit, people say, well, what can I do? Didn't you read my book? I, mean, I got it off my book. <laughs> I think that's generational. I, I'm definitely one of those people that sometimes could really benefit. That's why I have a strong wife who's really good at being like, um, what can I do? This is what you can do. <laughs> it's kind of nice when it's spelled out for you. Um, that's, it's nice to know that, you know, it's the traditional ways of just work with your member of parliament. Just get, get the word out there. Advocate, advocate, advocate. And it's kind of like that old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? People don't have confidence in themselves, you know. They're, also, people don't want to talk about this. A lot of people don't want to talk about nuclear weapons today. Or the climate migrations. I mean, it's it's unpleasant and it's um, it's worrisome. And then and, and then they say, well, you know, that's government. I'm pretty busy. I'm running this thing. I've got this in my life, and you know. And and um, year, years ago, the Club of Rome, which is a think tank, had a big chart about people's interests. And Time had um, today. Uh, this week, uh, next week, next month, uh, next year, 25 years, it went that way. Then um, uh, my family, my business, uh, my community, uh, the world today, and the, the, what the world would be like 25 years from now. And they had it all charted. And all that. So it was very clear that most people's interests are their business and their family right now this week. That's where most people are. And the least amount of dots is in the graph that shows my interest in the world 25 years from now. But it's a failure to exercise influence on the world 25 years from now that it's going to be able to short-range policies. I think you just summed up the current polling numbers in Canada. Exactly <laughs> that. People are very much in the now and concerned about their financial... Uh, yeah, and I, I, and I don't wish to be, uh, you know, oblivious to people's real hurting needs. I mean, I understand that. Yeah, like I think for someone like myself, hopefully I've got a few years left in me. If you tend to think about like what I'm, if I'm in a decent physical condition and I can do everything for my family now, if I'm lucky enough to live a long life, I'm not exactly thinking about that. So, what do you, if you had one, one kind of message that you could share? Just again, you said you're not an oracle, but you are someone with a wealth of knowledge, what would it be if you could send a message to the people who are listening today, those who you said, you know, maybe aren't necessarily aware of 
the distant future who aren't necessarily, they're kind of caught up in the now. It may seem prosaic to you, but it's just to care about one another. Um, I mean, love is, uh, is so misunderstood or underutilized or whatever. I mean, love is so often associated with a personal relationship or, or even sexual relationship. I mean, you know, it's, of course it's got all that. But love is a dynamic. It cannot really be defined. You know, it can't be lifted up. It, 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 it's, it's a driving innate force that helps us to um, uh, relate to fellow human beings and by extension to the planet itself love is a is a is a powerful force and if we would just let it kind of take over our lives more now does that sound to you like soporific i mean some people do like they say oh yeah love is uh, let's talk about something else it, it's a dynamic you've asked me you know what, what what I've learned, if I've learned anything, if I've learned anything yes, in this journey that I've had through life, I mean, I've learned that if we don't love one another, uh, for um, aeons, love came down theologically in a vertical line, you know, from ages past. Now it's intersected with a horizontal line. That if we don't, um, I say love, but if we don't get along, if we don't cooperate, a very weak kind of love, and we don't do this, then we're really sunk because we can't keep the world going in in the uh, global uh, challenges we face today. We've got to cooperate. We've got to go. So there's, there's, for me, there's an intersection between this vertical line down here for ages past and the horizontal pragmatic realities of today. And, and, and in that sense, in that sense, it's a great time to be alive because never before have people been able to figure this out. It's, it's, it's a moment that we should utilize for developing the creation of the world. Which I think perfectly sums up the thesis of your book, Keep Hope Alive. The last question we would like to ask you if you'd like to participate, is there anything you've, you've dedicated your life's work to public service and you know advocacy for nuclear disarmament, among other things, is there anything interesting about yourself that maybe people don't know that you'd like to share? Any you, ever hear, you ever hear of Turner Classic Movies? Oh, yeah? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's yeah. Turner Classic Movies take me out of myself. Any favorites? Anything that... Uh, Casablanca. Right. I, uh, I know someone very special in my life who could agree with you on that. <laughs> very fan fantastic movie. The Band Box, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Music, dancing in the dark. Ah, you can't beat it. <laughs> Turner classic movies are a staple in our childhood growing yeah. up with our grandparents. And American in Paris, 
Yeah. I, rem I remember Mama. Oh, God, they're so good, those movies. I have them recorded. And then every so often something happens and I lose the recording, but I record them again. Hmm. Because uh, sometimes I can't take it anymore and I need to go to a movie. Hmm. I understand. And before we leave you, Senator, could you please let our listeners know where they can find your books? Yes, at Amazon, uh, Kobo, and Apple. Uh, Amazon, Kobo, Apple. We can link that in the description. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and Amazon. to Caitlin's point, the book is, especially for someone who's looking for, you're kind of unsure of what's going on. It's a really fast way to kind of understand the geopolitical. It's an awesome book because you can get through it. You don't have to dedicate an abundance of time, like weeks and you're just going to be in the know. Also, there's other topics that we didn't address today that are really interesting about, you know, just our life through virtual um, meetings through Teams and then the advancement of AI. So definitely check out the book. It's a really, really great read. Thank you so much for taking time. We know when you came to Ottawa, you were very busy, and we really appreciate the time that you've given us today. Thank well, you. I'm just glad to meet you both. Thank you, sir. Senator Roach, What's Your Thing podcast, episode number five. Thank you so much. Thank you. So make sure to check us out. What's your thing pod.com. Check us out on Instagram, YouTube, follow us on TikTok. Check us out. We're going to have a blast. What's your thing? What's your thing?